My name is Tim and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and Al-Anon really helps. <laughs> Let's start the time. Um, thank you to my delightful host, Donna. Thank you to the committee. And thank you to my buddy, Rob, for starting the conversation which got me here. Um, I shouldn't really start with a quotation after what Janice just <laughs> said, but... <laughs> if someone will kindly cover her ears or distract her, I... <laughs> Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Uh, in order to talk about the fact I needed spiritual help, I need to describe to you the state I was in, the state in which a person requires spiritual help. Um, and this isn't going to be linear. If you want things to be linear, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> when I was nine, my older brother came to stay. I'd not met him before. He'd been kept away. He'd kept himself away and been kept away. But he came to stay. And when he arrived, it was clear that there was something wrong because I, I was allowed to meet him for... 10 seconds or so before I was ushered in one direction, he was ushered in the other direction. And whenever the door to the room that he was in was opened, I smelled whiskey and cigarettes. And my parents sat with him for a few days as he drank whiskey and smoked cigarettes. And I never saw him again. About a year later, I answered the phone, and there was an accent I didn't recognize of what turned out to be a policeman from another part of the country. And I was asked to call my mother to the phone, and I called my mother to the phone. And within five seconds, she collapsed. And my brother, as an alcoholic, had committed suicide. And people that came to visit the family a few days later, took me to one side and said, if you work hard at school, you will take her pain away. When I was 11, I chanced across a book by a Ukrainian author called Before Sunrise. He was a comic writer, but he wrote some non-fiction works. And Before Sunrise, was an account of why he was depressed. And he concluded that wherever the fault had occurred had been before sunrise, it had been before he was born. It, he was just like that. And I remember lying on the sofa and turning my face to the back of the sofa, thinking, if I stare hard enough at the back of the sofa, the world will disappear, and I won't need to exist in it. And I did at one point speak to my mother 
about the fact I was depressed. And she said, everyone in our family is depressed. Uh, when I was 15, uh, someone with a lot more power than me performed some actions, shall we say. So this is under the Me Too banner. And I was a chorister. And the next day I was singing in Salisbury Cathedral. And there was a moment of exquisite beauty in the singing, which I could appreciate but could not access. And I knew I would never be able to access the beauty in that moment. And I saw a huge black bird flying down the aisle, the, the nave of this cathedral. It seemed to be a hundred feet across and I remember nothing else for a couple of days. I woke up in, uh, the, the, I was in a boarding school. I woke up in the sanitarium, the, the, the hospital wing. Um, and they didn't know what to do with me. Um, I, I'd broken down one way or another. I, I didn't find out. I never found out really what happened that day. And I was described retrospectively um, as a 15-year-old who was like a little old man. And when I was 18, uh, the headmaster of my school said, you were like a little old man when you came here, but something in you has blossomed. And I didn't like to tell him what it was. The thing that had blossomed was alcohol. <laughs> I had found alcohol. There was another world I could live in. I did not need to live in your wretched, drab world any longer. All I had to do was tolerate those hours in between the drinking episodes, and if I could get to the drinking bit of the day, the lights would turn on. Except sometimes the lights would turn on, it would be great. Sometimes I'd drink, it would get scary. Sometimes I'd drink, it, it would get dark. Sometimes I would drink, it would get violent. And I had no way of predicting before I had a drink what the evening had in store. It was Russian roulette. Um, what makes me an alcoholic, however, is not the fact that I drank buckets. If you watched me, that's a technical term. Um, <laughs> if you watched me drinking, I, I was living in Germany when I was... 16, and you can drink legally at 16 in Germany. Uh, I, not everything. I think there were, at the time there were, there were certain spirits you couldn't, but you could drink beer. And I, I was living in a suburb of Frankfurt, and there's something called Apfelwein, a, a sort of a alcoholic cider, and I, I drank buckets of it. And if you'd watched me with the other kids, who were kids, if you'd watched me with the other kids drinking, we would have all looked the same, but there was something different about my drinking. I'm not 
the heavy drinker it talks about in the big book. I, am, I class myself, I get to class myself as a real alcoholic. And when you come to AA, they give you these questionnaires, don't they? 20 questions and blah, blah, blah. I've just got a couple of questions. When I drink, do I overshoot? And my answer is perennially, inevitably. The, the only option I have when I drink is to drink buckets, is to drink to the point that I'm, I'm so ill the next day I cannot function or show up, or, or I sweat and shake and show off until I can drink again. Uh, I don't have a moderation option. And there's a wonderful bit in the doctor's opinion where it says something to the effect of it didn't satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life in full flight from reality or were outright men mental defectives. What this means to me is that although my drinking was a solution to those spiritual, emotional, psychological, social states I described at the beginning of this talk. Although it was a solution to that, there's more to it going on. The terrible state I was in would explain the first quarter bottle of gin. Because that was enough to shut everything down, to give me a sense of peace, and escape, and relief, and hope. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was sober, I couldn't tell the truth. When I was drunk, I could because I was anesthetized to it, so I could let the truth out. And people were horrified when I told my story when I was drinking. Um, because I, I would tell it with a lot more of the bells and whistles, the embellishments, the colorful details which are not appropriate tonight, but there were colorful details. Um, and I, I felt nothing as I was telling the story about what had happened to me. That was what was so great about the drinking. Now, first quarter of a bottle of gin, great. It's got me exactly to where I want to be. Why do I drink the other three quarters of the bottle of gin and then a bottle of wine? It is not for the effect. I do not drink alcoholically for the effect. I might have the first few drinks for the effect, but the rest of the drinks has got nothing to do with the effect. I'm already where I want to be. More drinks will actually take me out of the zone. It will take me out of what I want to feel into the upside down world. And there is no portal back. There is no... There is no handsome teenager to pull you through the tree trunk. In, in a bout of drinking, once I'm on the other side, you just have to wait till it gives you up. My great Al-Anon mentor chap called Tom, who's one of my five favorite Jesuits from California. Um, one, everyone has to have five favorite Jesuits. If you don't have your five, just go and research over the next, we'll check in ne this time next year. Um, 
he's speaking in Texas tonight. My sponsor, Joe McF, is speaking in Texas tonight. I love the fact that the two most important people in my recovery are, uh, are doing the same thing that I'm doing tonight. It means an awful lot to me. Tom says, um, alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is, is done dancing. <laughs> so when I start drinking, I go into the upside down world and I don't choose when I come out of it. I don't choose what is going to happen during that time. Um, as someone expressed very eloquently earlier this week, um, if they have a craving for all sorts of things just in their life, they eat the thing or do the thing and it satisfies the craving. Whereas when I drink, it doesn't satisfy the craving, it amplifies the craving. Uh, this is not because I'm maladjusted to life. This is innate. It is not because I'm an outright mental defective. I was at the end of my drinking because if you drink enough every day for a number of years, you will become an outright mental defective. But that phenomenon was there right from the beginning when my mind was pretty clear in all sorts of other ways. So that would make no sense. Um, those other explanations in the doctor's opinion do not satisfy me. Uh, it does satisfy me, though, to say that um, I am like this because I am like this. That's what the f physical craving means to me. It's not that I feel it physically. It is something which originates in my body and won't be amenable to a spiritual awakening. And if, if you know any friends of yours who have started drinking after many years, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, yet, for whatever reason, time passes, things change, they start drinking again. The fact that they have had a spiritual awakening will not bring them back and know what I can't press the stop button when someone starts drinking again. They can't press the stop button. I've seen people try to come back to AA from a relapse and it's like, you know those films where someone falls through the ice of a river and the current immediately carries them in the icy water underneath the ice and someone is running along the top and they can see each other. But from the underside of the ice, there is nothing to, gr to grab hold of. There is nothing to gain purchase. And you can't, they're moving too quickly. You, there is no time to drill a hole in the ice to get to them. And providence may provide a hole in the ice 100 meters, a kilometer further down the river. But that's not up to me. I see some people coming back, some people not, and there is no rhyme or reason to it. If I were to start drinking tonight, I, don't, I do not know what would happen. Um, I was sober for three months at one point, started drinking again, and it was a year and a half before I even remembered that I had ever been sober. So this is the first element of alcoholism, is that I innately drink too much. There is no option of moderation. Um, when I first 
darkened the door of an AA meeting. I had no friends left. Uh, that night, I had to I had to call someone to tell them how exciting the AA meeting was. Of course, you do. Uh, <laughs> attending the AA meeting had generated this flood of identification, and I needed to share it with someone. And I certainly wasn't going to share it with anyone at the meeting. Um, so <laughs> I, I went through the phone book, and it was like the 743rd person in line to the throne got the call, because everyone else had been so offended by my behavior. Uh, I am, shall we say, unbounded when I'm drinking. Um, as a friend of mine says, be specific, not explicit. <laughs> I had no friends. Um, I weighed seven stone. There are 14 pounds in a stone. Some of you can spend the next 15 minutes working out how many pounds that was. Um, I, was I was really ill. I, I was told I looked like a ghost when I came into that first meeting. Uh, I couldn't work, I couldn't study. I lived in an airless, lightless room with rubbish piled a foot high. You know, the, the, when you read about archaeology uh, and the city of Troy, what they would do is they would just throw the trash on the ground and then build the next layer of the city above it, and that was my room. I just... <laughs> I was kind of busy for a few years with drinking. There's no time for tidying. Um, <laughs> I had reason enough to stop drinking. And I ended up in AA. It's a long story how I ended up. That's for another time. But I ended up going to an AA meeting. Um, and I thought, I'm all set now. I know I'm an alcoholic. My brother was an alcoholic who committed suicide. I know where this is going. I'm not stupid. I put two and two together and accurately made four. Um, I knew I was never going to be able to drink safely. I knew that moderation was out of the question. Here was a bunch of people who were abstinent, clearly. I could abstain from alcohol for the rest of my life with these people. Uh, that equation was really simple. But I thought I could do without spiritual help. Um, there's a terrifying second feature of alcoholism beyond the fact that I have no off button. And it's the fact that there is an on button which turns itself on. I don't turn the on button on. I am notified that the on button has been turned on. <laughs> and the command comes down the tubes, we're going to drink. And I, there are some meetings where people, in a very well-meaning way, say, 
don't drink and go to meetings. And I think that's pretty good advice. However, uh, I can't follow the instruction don't drink consistently. And the problem is that sometimes I can. So there are days when I'll go to a meeting and it's like a pep rally and I'm excited and I love everyone and this is the place for me and I'm letting the love of the room flood over me and someone gives me a Melody Beatty book and I'm thrilled and these... These are my people. And on a day like that, I can not drink. And this gives me the impression that all I have to do is repeat that day every day, and then I'll be fine. And if I drink again, it's clearly because I wasn't trying hard enough. Uh, when I was at school, I came top of the class in a quiz of some sort. And my mother helpfully informed me that since I'd done it once, if I were ever not to come first, it could only be because I hadn't tried hard enough. Now, this mentality I brought with me into AA, and so when I was sober on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then did that for weeks, and then found myself drunk, I thought, I'm just not following the directions clearly enough. They said to call a sponsor. I should have called my sponsor. Um, I should have, I should have uh, wound the tape forward. <laughs> now, again, there are days that works. There are days when I feel like a drink, and I remember being at fellowship after my home group, and realizing I'd gone into like this 15-second blackout looking at the optics under the spirit bottles in the restaurant. And my mind wound the tape forward involuntarily. I saw where it would take me. I didn't wind the tape forward. I can't manually affect that. I can't manually make that happen. Because when I want to drink, there is no tape recorder, or there is no tape, or I can't... It, it jams. Or I think, I know exactly what's going to happen, but F it. Um, there's a book by a Russian writer called Notes from the Underground. And it's this philosophical treatise about um, something called utilitarianism. It's, there was this philosophy, this idea that if people only know what's good for them, they'll do the right thing at all times. Ish. That, that's a very approximate description of utilitarianism. It's a much bigger story than that, but that was the basic idea. And this writer said, that's just not how people work. Um, in the 1850s in London, they, they, there was this big exhibition, and we're still talking about it, and um, <laughs> they built this thing called the the Crystal Palace, and it was, well, a palace made of crystal. An amazing thing. And Dostoevsky said, any sane person 
when presented with the Crystal Palace, wants to throw a stone at it. Anyone who going into the organ loft of a cathedral and seeing the, the organ turned on, someone pumping the bellows, wants to pull out the stops and slam their fist down just to make a noise. That's not alcoholic, that's human. I better not have my human faculties, my human irrationality, my human illogicality, my human ignorance, carelessness, selfishness, emotionalism be driving my bus when it comes to whether or not I have a drink. If my sobriety depends on my emotional balance or intellectual understanding or acquire, acquiring any great faculty. That's about how I get to remain in charge the whole time and bring about my own sobriety through common sense and morality. And that doesn't work for someone like me because I want to throw a stone at the Crystal Palace. My problem, I, I alluded to it earlier, at the first meeting I went to, I, I loved it. They, they gave me a cup of tea. Oh, by the way, in my first meeting, um, I looked so young and broken and strange, and that they thought they thought I was. And I must have. I don't know what I mumbled, but they tried to send me to an Alatine meeting down the road. <laughs> but I insisted that I stay, and they gave me half a cup of tea because I was shaking, and they placed me. They placed me in the... They said, sit there. And I didn't know you were allowed to argue, so I did what I was told. I sat in the middle, and around me, 360 degrees, I heard people telling various aspects of my story in a casual, relaxed way, and I knew this was the right place. However, by the end of the meeting, uh, when they said, would you like to come for coffee with us? Although I'm sure I was polite, I said maybe next month or something like that. Inside, I was thinking, me? Go for coffee with, with you? Why, why would I do that? Why? Over the course of that hour, I had learned to look down on these people who were sober. I'd already placed myself in a position of superiority. And I would only ever humble myself as far as was necessary to extract from you the goods that I needed. And then I was back on top of the horse again. And when the prospect of being sober for my whole life became a real prospect because I'd been to a few AA meetings, the next thing that happened was the planner started. I don't know if you have a planner. The planner, it's a little module, a little department in my mind. I've got lots of departments. Some talk to each other, some don't. It's very complicated. <laughs> the planning, scheduling, and logistics department <laughs> is very busy. And its aim is to construct a vision of what my life would need to look like for me to be okay. And there are various elements to this plan. The first one is a set of outcomes. Some of those are really basic. I need somewhere fancy to live. I need plenty. I need enough money that they can't get me. 
Now we all know who they are. They're out there. They're... <laughs> Don't look now, but some of them are actually looking through the window at the back. Um, <laughs> but if you have enough money, you can keep them at bay. I need a career, not a job, a career. Because I, I wouldn't just have a job, of course I would have a career. One with progression, and I need a, a mortgage, and a, I need to own the place that I live in because that places me in a class above. And I need smart, fashionable, sassy friends. I need sex, money, power, prestige, comfort, thrills, and looks. And the planning department, whole team, run by Janine, um, they... <laughs> Janine is very efficient and really badly needs an Al-Anon meeting. Um, they word into action. They'd been furloughed when I was drinking because there was just nothing they ever planned came off. But as now that I was sober again, we're in business. I can find a way of becoming the person I need to be for you to think I'm just great. And I love that Clancy line about how um, if you think I'm just one of the, the bunch, I feel less than. If you think I'm superior to everyone, I can break even. I feel just about okay, and that was me. So my plan involved some basic security, some financial security, pocketbooks. Um, it involved some ambitions being achieved uh, with ever-increasing stakes. It, was, it, was the, it wasn't the idea of achieving something. Every achievement I ever had needed to go up a level. I needed to get more and more, but I was getting less and less of an effect. So the ambitions grew more and more grandiose and challenging. Um, I needed you to play certain roles in this as facilitator and rescuer. And you were, people existed, were, but were delivery systems for me, for the commodities that I needed out of the world. I didn't form relationships. I formed business relationships with people. There was always a transaction there, and if the price was right, I'd pay. Uh, but at the center of this was the idea that I can make something of myself now that I'm sober. Isn't that marvelous? You get that wonderful phrase, a self-made man. And now alcohol wasn't getting in the way, whoopee. And I sat going and immediately fell flat on my face, found myself drunk within a few weeks and was completely baffled as to why. Um, when I'm in that state of trying to fix the void within me by creating an image of who I am in your mind. That's basically what that whole thing is about. I get a number of results. I have very occasional successes, but fear and 
frustration when things don't go my way, disappointment when things do go my way and I'm not fixed. I remember some achievements when I was 15, 16, and half an hour later, the cold wind starts to blow because it hasn't done what it's supposed to do and you bang down on the desk in front of you the next objective, the next aim. When I get here, it'll be all right. When I get there, it'll be all right. And I cannot stand the tension and I walk past a pub and just the smell of the beer and the cigarettes when the door opens and some, some drunk rolls out the smell reminds me that there was a point in my life I was relaxed, just a moment. And people talk about this alcoholism being a condition of incredibly short memory, ISM. And I don't think it's about having a short memory. Um, if that were the case, then I'd have a short memory across the whole of my life, but I don't. I'm actually allergic to all sorts of things and it wouldn't occur to me it's ne never occurred to me in my drinking to forget that I was allergic to things I was allergic to it's not a memory problem um, the pain at a level I'm not always even aware of becomes so intense that a manual override takes place and if my spiritual malady doesn't get treated it treats itself. And it's like walking around with a gun, a loaded gun in your pocket, and watching your hand pull the gun out, point it at your temple, and shoot. And you have no control over it. And it's no good saying to someone, you know, call before you shoot. It's not going to happen. And I found myself drunk again and again and again. until the 24th of July, 1993, when I threw myself in front of a car in order to mix things up a little. About <laughs> half an hour, half an hour after starting to drink one Saturday afternoon. And I'd been sitting in an AA meeting that morning. This meeting maker didn't make it. <laughs> Uh, P.S. Meetings really, really help. And my friend Tom says 100,000 will take the edge off somewhat. So still go to meetings, but with the hope that something will happen and you will surrender despite yourself. Uh, surrender is not something I bring about as an act of the will. But if I fool around on a diving board for long enough, not wanting to jump, eventually I'll fall. And that's what happened. I kept fooling around in AA. Um, and I remember that day, I was released from the police cells. Did I tell I got arrested? Uh, I got released from the police. That was after the ambulance determined there was nothing broken. So there was a whole sequence of, of the helping professionals helping me to the police cell. Um, <laughs> oh, the policeman, after he extracted the bottle of Italian fortified wine from my, my sweaty little hand, he said, as he was leading me into the police station and the cells, he said, why are you doing this to yourself? And I said, because AA doesn't work. And by any measure of working, well, I've been going to AA for six months and I was drunk. So 
Uh, how well did AA appear to be working? Well, not very well, if you looked at my blood alcohol content as a measure of the success of AA. But as I was coming out of the cells that day, um, an AA member chanced across me. I, uh, I sat in his car before a meeting, and I, I said, I just don't know what went wrong. I seemed to be doing so well. And he said something which changed my life because I was willing to substitute his perception of the situation for mine. He said, you've been doing really great at all of the aspects of the AA program, just the not drinking bit. Um, I did not have as my primary purpose staying sober. I had as my primary purpose making something of myself. And staying sober was a means to an end. And if the end looked jeopardized, who cares about the means anymore? I had to unconditionally surrender. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, but I had to impose no requirements on myself. So it's worth stopping drinking if I get my health back, I get a career, I get friends. I, whatever it is that I think I'm gonna get by being sober, those are conditions which, if jeopardized, will put the whole project sobriety on the rocks, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, sometimes people want to get sober because they don't like how they feel drunk. Um, there's a little bit of bad news here. Um, sometimes sober, if your experience is anything like mine, you're going to feel way worse than some of the times when you're drinking because you are no longer anesthetized, you can watch yourself doing it. And you can watch yourself being that character in another book who does things he doesn't want to do, watches himself doing them and can do nothing about it. Stone cold sober. There's gonna be, there's gonna be pain. If I, stay, if I wanna stay sober because I want to avoid pain, well, what happens? <laughs> When I was 17 years sober, I had, um, um, oh, let's just get everything out on the table. I had an Al-Anon slip and got emotionally and romantically entangled with a newcomer who was relapsing. Now, that all got sorted out, everything's fine. However, that was a mini adventure, wasn't it? Um, specific, but not explicit. Um, you really don't want the details. Um, except, here's something. Um, you don't want to get a call in the middle of the night from a relapsing newcomer you're romantically entangled with. We never got physical, but it was right, there was a romantic entanglement. You don't want to get the call in the middle of the night from them to say they've just slashed their wrists and think, if I'd stayed away, would this not have happened? He's fine. He's my best friend today. It all worked out because we both 
placed the situation in God's hands. He ended up in a treatment center in Texas. I ended up telling the truth to my sponsor, who was in Texas. Texas is a big element of my story. Um, and I was willing to substitute my sponsor's perception of the situation for mine. And this poor chap was willing to substitute my sponsor's perception of the situation for his. And he dropped all weapons and defenses and did what he was told and went away for three months. Came out of that treatment center with a stack of men's cards, made amends within about three or four weeks. Has stayed sober ever since. As I say, we're best friends. He sponsors a ton of people, one of the strongest people I know. Um, but when I, I was telling, and this is the interesting bit, one of the interesting bits, interesting to me. Um, <laughs> oh, I normally footnote at the beginning by saying, if anything I say helps, feel free to use it, steal it, give it to your friends, give it to your enemies. If nothing I say helps, I, I, I can't do anything about that. There are 42 personal stories at the back because we're not meant to relate to all of them. So don't worry about it. If this leaves you, don't worry. There are a lot of other people. I was telling the truth about that situation to a kindly AA member, sober very many years, who didn't co-sign but didn't give it to me straight either. Um, when I finally told my sponsor the full truth of what was going on, he told me that an honest man is someone who eventually tells the truth. Didn't come straight away. When I did, the floodgates burst, and I was crying every day for three months um, over this, this desperate situation. If you're, st if you're staying sober because you think you're going to feel better the whole time, no. My unconditional surrender meant I had to want to be sober under any circumstances simply for the sake of being sober and not dying of alcoholism, maybe with it, latent, but not of alcoholism. I wanted the dignity of never being dragged out of the middle of the road by a policeman at one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. I wanted dignity above happiness. And when I was willing to do anything to have dignity above happiness, I stopped relapsing. Because I stopped placing any conditions. And I dropped my weapons, and I dropped my defenses. And I said, AA, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And over the next year, um, I had a series of humiliating experiences, which were some of the best of my life. Um, I had a very bad case of special and different when I got to AA. Um, and you never know who is going to help you the most. And Someone that helped me the most was a, a housewife from suburban London called Maureen, who was 17 years sober at the time and is 40-odd years sober now. And I remember taking her hostage on the phone one Saturday evening and saying, I can only communicate effectively through the medium of poetry. Um, so 
I think this was why I couldn't do a step four. You know, I couldn't possibly be truthful through that medium because it, it was not sophisticated enough to access the dark crannies of my personality. And she used a, a, a very uncivilized word and then said that uh, I was a common or garden variety alcoholic, just like everyone else. And I was insulted and I was humiliated and I was relieved. Because if I just had ordinary alcoholism, then maybe what worked for you would work for me too. And the essence of spiritual help. I mean, you know, I've done all the fancy spiritual things um, in as far as British people ever do. I mean, it's just, you're, you're just off the scale here. But um, <laughs> we, we make polite concessions in the UK. In the we nod in the direction of spirituality on you know, uh, two days a week. Um, but the real essence of spirituality for me is um, you've got the spiritual speaker tomorrow morning, so that's to look forward to. Um, <laughs> the essence of spirituality for me, as I've said already, and I'm going to say again, is to substitute someone else's perception of the truth of my life over my own, to take it to be true, not saying, prove this is true, but I'm going to trust you as a human being who is doing far better than me on any metric and who is giving time to me. That was the amazing thing. People with full busy lives were giving me their time. Um, which, I, there's no point in telling someone like me when I was new, I love you. Um, because I thought, well, I've got you wrapped around my little finger then. But if you take time out of your busy life to give it to me, that tells me that in your calculation, I'm worth it. That was what gave me a sense of fighting for me because you would fight for me. So maybe there's something worth me fighting for here. But I didn't ask Maureen or Doug or Sue, or any of the other people that helped me in the first year, I didn't ask them to prove empirically why what they were saying was true. I believed it because I trusted them. My spirit saw something in them and said, I'm done, I'm just, I'm not gonna ask any questions, I'm not gonna interrogate you, I'm just gonna do what you say. And I've, I had to make a lot of amends in my life for things that I've done. Never have I had to make amends for something my sponsor suggested I do. Now sometimes the sometimes the guidance is a bit off and needs tweaking and adjusting over time. It's, it's, it, it's not coming down on, on tablets. The, the, <laughs> there is, even if your sponsor is from Texas, um, West Texas. Um, it's not that he's infallible, but it's that when push comes to shove, I would rather follow his sound, loving advice than my best ideas. And I did what I was told. 
until <laughs> remember that whole skit about when I get all of these things, I'm going to be okay. Now, I was really, I was really surrendered for the first year uh, to three of my recovery. But I started to use the tools of the program so effectively that I became effective at getting the plans from my planning department fulfilled. I got a relationship, a long-term stable relationship with someone else in AA. I got a house, I got a mortgage, I got a pension, I got a degree, I got a job, I got a career. Things were going from strength to strength. Um, ever-increasing stakes, ever-increasing stress. The more I got, the more frightened I was. Because if this fails, what's left? There is nothing left. All I have is this career and this life, and everything is intertwined. All of these things go together. I remember saying to my other half at one point, I would love to go and study and do something I actually really care about with my life. And he said, if you want to do that, you can do that on your own. I'm not going to bankroll it. The whole thing was tied up in a single mess and I was getting more and more stressed and I was going to AA meetings in London and people were saying, well, just up your meetings and just let go. <laughs> Wear your recovery like a loose garment. All of these wonderful things which have their place. I say those things, I, I do say those things to people today in a particular context. But I was not getting any kind of solution here. And I did what was sensible, which is I stopped going to AA for two years. I didn't drink. I maintained a relationship with a higher power. I had a religious practice which I was uh, very solid about. But I wasn't going to sit in rooms with people saying, I'm just let go. Because when I was in these immensely stressful situations, I was um, a director of a company which went from 18 employees to 130 employees in about a year. And I had problems like, we need to press the payroll button um, Friday afternoon. We need to press it by 5 o'clock. It's 3 o'clock now. We're £200,000 short. And I had to start making phone calls to get people to wire me hundreds of thousands of pounds to pay our employees. Because if we didn't pay them and they realised the cheques weren't going through, they would walk. Um, this, by any stretch of the imagination, is a stressful situation. And you go to meetings and someone says, wear your recovery like a loose garment. It's not. You need something more than that. If you're me, you need spiritual help. Which means not taking the steps as tools to live more successfully. People say, well, I have a living problem today, and I understand that I have a living problem. But it's not that I'm using the tools to solve my living problem. My problem is far deeper than that. My problem is that I have thoughts, and I believe the thoughts. Why do I believe them? Because they're mine. <laughs> Have you ever been in a business meeting after an AA meeting where there's a bust up, there's a fight, there's a little argument. It's one of those little catty, passive-aggressive, manipulative business meetings. <laughs> Now, I know your sponsees who go to other groups will tell you about that. You'll never have had that at your own home group, so, but just bear with me on this one. One of these tense situations where everyone gets involved, and then the next morning, 
the phone calls start coming in and everyone witnessed something different. And of course, I'm putting everyone right because I saw what really went on. Well, why? Uh, the only basis I've ever had for thinking I'm right is because I'm the one that's thinking in the first place. I had to surrender my whole thinking system. The whole basis of my life was wrong. I came back to AA with my tail between my legs at 10 years sober uh, because uh, I got very close to drinking. Um, and I uh, exited a, a, a dangerous situation um, by the skin of my teeth and I went back to AA. And a very curious thing happens if any of you have ever left AA for a, a couple of years, you come back and it's like people are speaking Czech. It's like the sounds don't even sound like human sounds. It's just that there's, there's, it took three months before I could understand what people were even saying again. And now there's a, a complicated story, but basically over the next five years in AA, I started looking for a solution. I started seeking spiritual help, which is I recognize that at some fundamental level, the whole basis for my existence was wrong. And eventually I found a set of tapes um, on the internet of someone who was describing how to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and to treat the, the book up to page 63 as a set of mirrors and to say, do I see myself in this? Do I see myself in this? Do I see myself in this? And then from page 63 to the end, whenever there's an instruction, follow it. And spirituality, for me, means being dumb enough to follow the instructions. So I wrote down, I transcribed the instructions from the tapes, and I did what was instructed. I'd done amends 15 years earlier, um, and they were as good as I could do at the time. But when I did a really thorough um, set of amends under the instructions of a man who by then was dead from tapes that I found randomly on the internet, um, I found 78 names. Um, I went back to everyone. I'd been told not to go back to exes. I'd been to the whole categories of people in AA folklore I'd been told not to go back to, but I went back anyway, except when there was a legitimate except when to do so would injure them or others. There were three situations where I didn't. One, something which would place me in a position where I'd be less useful to other people. Secondly, um, uh, not to reveal new information. Thirdly, not to grass anyone else up. And that took none of the names off the 70-odd strong list. Um, so no get-out clauses for me. I made all of the amends in nine days. The top of my head blew off. I went to an AA meeting. <laughs> it's been sewn back on. <laughs> I went to an AA meeting that night. And the room was pulsing with life. It was an ordinary AA meeting. I'd never 
realized that the other people in AA were human beings, I could actually sense other people in pain. Why? Because I'd made amends myself. And this happened not when I made the penultimate amend, but when I made the last amend. If you have a balloon attached to the ground with a hundred pieces of string, if you cut 99 of them and there is one piece of string, that one piece of string is enough to hold the balloon to the ground. You cut the last piece of string and it will disappear up into the stratosphere. And what those strings were, were evidence my ego found for me basically being a schmuck. Um, when, I, when I make amends, what I'm saying to you is, I actually love you. And what I did was not a reflection of who I am in my deepest essence. And I recognize what I've done to you. And people say you can't change the past. You can absolutely restore the rupture that happened. The tear that started in the fabric and then ripped the pieces of fabric ever further apart. I go back and I make amends and that rupture is healed. And then the whole past since then is changed. And I was reconnected with other people. I can't talk eloquently about a relationship with God, but I can talk eloquently about, well not eloquently, I can talk about um, having a relationship with you. My friend Kevin says that your, fa your, your friends in AA are God's amends to you for your family. <laughs> now, that's partly true, but second, there are two parts to that. Firstly, um, you are my family now, part of my family, but I got my family back. Um, my mother is 88. Um, uh, I, I would have had three brothers and three sisters. My three brothers are dead, two of my sisters are mentally ill. Um, it's a tricky family. Um, uh, my mother's had a devastatingly difficult life and was enormously bitter for many years. And when I was 15 or 16 years sober, the reason I did, I followed the instructions on those tapes was because I had an unresolved relationship with my mother. It was heading towards her 80th birthday and I couldn't bear to be in the same place as her for more than a couple of hours because of the pain of the memory of my childhood. And I didn't blame her logically anymore, but part of me still held something against her. And I didn't know why. I, I couldn't fix that through therapy or, or, or anything. I tried, by God, I tried. But I couldn't be with her. And my brother's suicide note, he committed suicide on her birthday. And he said, I love you, but I can't be in the same room as you. And 15 years sober, I could have said the same thing. Because when I was with her, I was 15 again. Um, she, for years, would berate me. She would say, why don't you love me? Why don't you love me like I love my mother? Christmas is cancelled. Stuff like that. Um, and when I got to the step eight, 
I didn't know what I'd done wrong because I'd been taught in AA how to be a good son. I was play acting the good son. I was showing up. I was remembering Christmases and birthdays. I was keeping my mouth largely shut. I was helping around the house. I was being polite. I was taking her out. I was full of bitterness and she could see it. Of course she could see it. And if ever you don't know what you've done wrong, try saying to God, show me where I am at fault. And I tried, because I'm being taught to follow instructions. So I tried it. I was walking along the road. I remember, I remember exactly where I was in the road. And I, I remember saying to, to God, you show me where I've gone wrong in this relationship. And I thought, maybe over the next couple of weeks, something will come to me. Ten paces later, loud voice, you're a fraud. The outside was behaving well. The inside was bitter and I was powerless over it. There was a gap between the two. She saw that gap. It was killing her. She was not, is not the sort of person you can go to and say, I've been a fraud for the last 15 years. I've been full of bitterness towards you. You can't say that. It's revealing new information. I had to go, I had to say to my higher power, you're going to have to show me how to make amends for this because I cannot make amends for this. She's got no one left. And the one person she's got left doesn't want to be there. She's like, you know, the cat in Pepe Le Pew is trying to get away. <laughs> on her, four minutes left, um, on her 80th birthday, I was praying all the way down on the train to where she lived. And we got a taxi to her front door. She was no longer driving by then a taxi to her front door and when she opened the front door I didn't see my mother I saw a lonely frightened old woman that was trepidatious about what the day would hold in store for her but who'd cry first and I never understood why I was so unhappy when I had been with her. But that feeling went. That moment never came back. I don't un again, I don't understand why I was so unhappy as a child. I've never worked it out. I don't understand why I was so bitter about my mother. It doesn't make sense. But what I do know is that the problem no one could solve when I placed it firmly and squarely in God's hands saying, I know nothing, everything between my ears is rubbish, show me the right thought and action. And I stopped being a fraud that day, not because I learned how to behave better, but because my insides were brought in line with how I'd been taught to behave already. And for years, I couldn't go back at Christmas because it was just too, too painful. My rock bottom was around Christmas and blah, blah, blah. Um, this Christmas, me and my other half, been together for 13 years, um, we've had her round to our place for Christmas for the last, since that, since that, her 80th birthday. But this year, she lives in an old people's place, semi-sheltered, but we took Christmas to... 
We took Christmas to her. We did all the decorations, we did all the food, we did blah, 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 blah. And it was an ordinary, it was an ordinary day. Now, bear in mind where the story started. Bear in mind what's happened to her kids. And the last thing she said on that day, as we shut the door, was, this has been the best day of my life. This is AA. Thank you for listening.